Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Political pantheon, leaders of the G20 nations gather in person in Rome. Supply shocker, Apple and Amazon sales take a hit, so do their shares. And meta metamorphosis, Mark Zuckerberg moves to the metaverse to rebrand Facebook. It's Friday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Friday, where we're already talking about the weekend. Why? Well, it's a working one for the G20 leaders. Coming up this hour, we'll have the latest from Rome with COVID, recovery and climate all up for debate. President Biden meeting with the Pope at the Vatican just a short while ago. The president also praying, I think, for a breakthrough in D.C., where divisions remain within his own party over his signature spending bills. We're also on the COP26 countdown with the climate catastrophe alarm already ringing loud and clear. We're all about finding the right solutions on this show. And to help us today, sustainability sage, the former Unilever chief, Paul Polman, and author of new book Net Positive, will tell us how CEOs especially can reduce their carbon footprint. But first, of course, you need to know your shoe size. And that's where climate tech firm Persephone comes in, helping big companies measure the damage and tackle it. The climate on Wall Street, fall-like. The Nasdaq set to pull back from record highs after Halloween-like earnings from the two tech giants, Apple and Amazon, both warning that supply chain disruptions limited sales in the past quarter. Shares of both firms down sharply in pre-market trade. It's all relative, remember. These two have completely soared this year. Fright night over in Europe, too, with new numbers showing Eurozone inflation at 13-year highs. Prices and global inflation, another thing we'll add to the G20 agenda. It's a full one. Let's get to the drivers, because that's where we begin. Leaders of the world's biggest economies gathering in Rome today, ahead of the first in-person G20 summit since the pandemic began, though some, of course, will be joining virtually. It's the second major overseas trip for U.S. President Biden, who will travel directly from Rome to Scotland for the COP26 climate talks. His first meeting, as I mentioned already today, with Pope Francis and Ben Weedman joins us from Rome. Ben, great to be with you. A busy morning for uh, President Biden, an emotional, deeply religious man himself. Of course, I think meeting the Pope once again will be an incredibly special moment. Many of the discussion topics, though, with the Pope similar to what he's going to be discussing with the, the G20 leaders, whether it's climate recovery or whether it's tackling vaccine inequity, many things to discuss over the coming days. Yes, in fact, uh, President Biden, who's normally late for most events, arrived right on time at noon for his meeting uh, with Pope Francis. This isn't the first time the two men have met, but it is the first time they have met uh, Biden as president of the United States. Now, uh, the media was not allowed to see the moment when they actually met in the apostolic apartment. But uh, we understand that they discussed climate, poverty, social justice, uh, issues that the Pope has been quite outspoken about. And certainly recently he uh, gave a statement that was very blunt in that, for instance, he was calling for pharmaceutical companies to share the formula to the COVID vaccines uh, with developing countries so they could produce vaccines themselves. He also called for 
the powerful countries of the world to stop using sanctions as a weapon against other countries, because as we've seen all too, so many times, uh, sanctions are a very blunt weapon that oftentimes hurts people more than those in power. So this, we understand, was a cordial meeting between the two men. President Biden, of course, is a regular church-going Catholic. Uh, and uh, so, yes, this was a meeting of, of great emotional value. But also, given Pope Francis's advocacy for fighting climate change, it is a good boost before he goes into the meeting tomorrow, uh, where they might, he might be dealing with some among the G20 leaders who aren't quite, shall we say, enthusiastic when it comes to the fight against climate change. Julie? Yes, and of course, Hot on the Hills from announcing the framework, at least, for a monster $555 billion portion of his spending plan arrangements that will tackle climate specifically. Ben, onwards to meetings today as well. He's going to be meeting, I believe, Mario Draghi, the next leader, of course, to, uh, to discuss what? Well, he, uh, first he'll be meeting with the Italian president, uh, Sorgio Mattarella, and then he will be meeting with Mario Draghi. Now, Mario Draghi, uh, prior to this meeting, has come out and said that the G20 meeting is going to be a new chapter in multilateralism after years of isolation. Isolation under Donald Trump's America First policy, but also isolation as a result of the COVID pandemic. We shall see if his wish actually comes true, however. And then he's meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron. And of course, there's that very touchy subject of that $60 billion French submarine deal that they, France had concluded with Australia, and then Australia and the United States behind France's back concluded another deal, and uh, Australia canceled the French deal. So there's a lot of bad blood at the moment between the United States and France over that deal. And we understand that the Americans may be offering to provide logistical assistance and other forms of support for France's counterterrorism activities in Africa. Julia? Yes, and we actually have live pictures, as you mentioned now. American President Joe Biden set to meet imminently the Italian President Sergio Mattarella at the Quirinale Palace. I believe we're seeing live pictures of him there walking, about to make that greeting, I believe, is. Uh, Ben was just saying there, ahead of that meeting with uh, Prime Minister Mario Draghi and, of course, then Emmanuel Macron, the French president, too. So a whole host of presidents. We can see him there walking. Not quite sure how close he is actually to officially greeting or being greeted by the Italian president, but we should see him momentarily. We can stay with it for a few moments here just to see whether we get it. But a laughing, smiling Joe Biden there, as you can see. No, we'll move on. Ben, I'll thank you, and we'll just keep uh, those pictures in vision for our viewers, just in case we see that handshake there. Ben Weedman, thank you so much for that. One of the noticeable 
absentees from the in-person summit. As Ben was mentioning, Chinese President Xi Jinping, he decided to attend the meeting via video link. The leaders of Russia, Japan and Mexico were also not travelling to Rome. David Culver joins us with more from Shanghai as we uh, allow Joe Biden there to uh, walk. What is an extended red carpet there? Let's be clear, uh, David. And also, I think context with President Xi Jinping is important too. President Xi has not left China since early 2020. So not a surprise not to see him attend these meetings in person. Well, and as you're looking at those live pictures of President Mm. Biden waiting to shake hands, as you point out, there will be no handshake from President Xi. You're right. He's not leaving China. He hasn't left since before the pandemic. And so it's not surprising that he's not going to be attending the G20. We do not expect him to attend COP26 either. That doesn't mean there aren't contributions and there aren't dialogues and exchanges to take place. In fact, just a few moments ago, we learned that President Xi just got off the phone with Boris Johnson of the UK a few days ago, speaking with Macron of France. He spoke in September with President Biden. So he's been making the rounds, if you will, ahead of this, because one of the most important parts of the G20 can be those side meetings where they have the one-on-one opportunities. Now, why is he not going? That's the question. Beijing, of course, doesn't put out too much information, Julia, on these things. But you can say perhaps it's because there's a recent COVID outbreak, a surge in Beijing and scattered throughout the country right now. When you compare the numbers to other countries, not all that bad, double digits daily. But for China, with this zero tolerance approach, it's an issue. And so they're clamping down once again. Or perhaps it's because, you know, why would you go to a party when everyone's talking about you? I mean, that's going to be the reality for a lot of these leaders. They're talking about how to deal with China and, and strategizing their coalition. Because, of course, with President Trump, there really wasn't that much unity in coming up against China. Now, under President Biden, that's been a different approach. He's been trying to engage a lot of the other world leaders to have a solid, unified approach when it comes to dealing with the People's Republic of China. And there's also uh, the reality that uh, going forward, President Xi has a lot of dealings to to work out with regards to certainly climate and uh, trying to stabilize the domestic region here. I mean, that's the other part of this, Julia, is when you look at him not going and not making these dealings with other leaders, well, that plays right into the nationalism that's been growing here and certainly shows that he's not willing to necessarily meet them on their terms, if you will, physically, mm-hmm. and ultimately may wait for them to make visits to China. And perhaps that's, for some at least, the international perception too, particularly as we head into COP26, the lack of presence of Xi Jinping is a, a message to say, look, you've had all you're going to get as far as China is concerned. How true is that in practice, David, do you think? I've been speaking with a lot of experts, you know, some of the folks who are even involved in some of the dealings when it comes to climate. And I I think you actually may see more coming out of China. I know right now they've put forward where they're not going to be investing internationally, for example, in future coal power plants. Domestically, a very different story. In fact, we did a a trip two years ago, an investigation into Inner Mongolia. China had pledged at the time that they weren't going to be going forward with many more coal power plants. What we saw there where new construction, coal power plants going up, a lot of mining underway. So they clearly were still moving forward in that direction. And domestically, it's required. I mean, they've even tried to rein back some of the emissions as the biggest polluter in the world, but they had a massive power outage. I mean, this was a crisis that they had in recent weeks where they had folks trapped in elevators, traffic lights going dark, all the folks uh, in those regions of the North, especially panicking as winter's cold was moving in. 
Uh, and so that had to be powered back up again, and they realized it's just a very difficult thing to move off fossil fuels. It doesn't mean, though, they're not moving forward rapidly with renewables. I mean, they have an incredible trajectory going forward of the production and implementation of wind and solar power, power and you're seeing that here. So I, I don't think necessarily that they're done putting forward their commitments or their pledges. You may actually see at COP26 that there are going to be some new announcements coming forward from China. And interestingly enough, when you talk about all the other issues that China is facing in the world and, and the contentious atmosphere between the West and China, this may be the one area, talking about climate and battling climate change in particular, where you find agreement, Julia. And they may come together on this and show that dialogue and cooperation is possible if only we're talking about saving the planet. Yeah, just one area where they can discuss. What we've been showing as you've been talking actually is the official handshake, as you said, it may not be happening between uh, Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden, but it certainly happened right. between the president of Italy and uh, the president of the USA there. Just uh, the president there, President Mattarella, just adding his mask back, given how uh, close proximity the two gentlemen are standing in. We've also seen the two greet members the president of Italy there shaking hands with the likes of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Anthony Blinken, of course, the Secretary of State. And now the two gentlemen walking away. It's set to be a 20-minute meeting before President Joe Biden goes on to meet Prime Minister Mario Draghi, as we've already discussed. But you can see the two gentlemen leading out those that they've already said hi to and uh, moving out of that room there. So we will move on and allow those two gentlemen to have their brief meeting, not quite to time. I do believe they're about 20 minutes uh, late now, uh, running late, despite the on-time meeting for the Pope there. But as we've said, a busy day for Joe Biden and it continues. And we will come back to that later on in the show. David Culver, for now, thank you for that. Okay, let's move on. Facebook facelift, Mark Zuckerberg rebranding his social media giant with a new name. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. Our mission remains the same. It's still about bringing people together. Meta. Brian Stelter joins us with all the details. We were both wrong, actually, Brian, but you were closer. I was trying to work out whether that was an avatar of Mark Zuckerberg or it was yeah. him himself, but he certainly joined the metaverse there. Right, right. He's, he's smart to be demonstrating what this is. I know that the savvy uh, response is that it's a distraction from Facebook's troubles. And that is definitely true on some degree. But let's look at what else this is, Julia. This could be a milestone for virtual reality. He is committing tens of billions of dollars in the next years to come on building out this mixed reality between virtual and real world, augmented reality, virtual reality. They call it the metaverse, a melding of all of it. And he wants to have an operating system for the future. I was so struck in his comments yesterday about how he feels like he's at the boot, under the boot of Apple and Google, you know, because those uh, companies control the phone software that Facebook uses to track all of us and then target us with ads. Zuckerberg does not want to be under Apple and Google's control. He wants his own operating system. He wants his own platforms. And that partly explains the metaverse. Also, he clearly wants to build something new. He is sick and tired of all the negative press about Facebook even though all that press is totally well-deserved, and he wants to change the story. He wants to change Facebook's story. But I think it's important to say, Julia, as cool as this looks, and maybe it'll all come true someday, nothing about the new name Meta changes Facebook's current problems. 
Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more on that. And uh, speaking of being a prisoner, I think, to uh, rivals operating systems and Facebook being an app on Apple, for example, I certainly felt like a prisoner when WhatsApp went down a couple of weeks ago and uh, couldn't call people and couldn't do things that I, I always do on right. a daily basis. Um, and that's a critical point of this, uh, Brian. We're not going to allow this to be a distraction because this whole week really for pace, Facebook, outside of investor interest in the business, is what else? What are the externalities for right. Facebook, for Instagram and for WhatsApp? And if you look at the Facebook stock, shares have rebounded to some degree in the weeks after those Facebook papers started to be published by the Wall Street Journal. Now they're being shared by dozens of news outlets. We're going to continue to see, I suspect, damning stories in the days and weeks to come. Uh, Francis Haugen will continue to speak in the U.S., the U.K., and elsewhere. The stories are going to continue, but the share price has reacted favorably to Zuckerberg's uh, earnings report and then this metaverse event. And now the question is, you know, when can it get practical, right? When can these new ideas get practical? Zuckerberg didn't announce a new product yesterday that all of us can buy today. This is still a ways away, and it is raw. It is ripe for parody. I'm sure SNL will have a lot of fun with the metaverse announcements. But you know, I do think from the investor point of view, there is some interest in what's going on here, and there is some recognition that Facebook's core ad business is performing relatively well despite all of this bad press, despite all of this bad reality news for Facebook. Yeah, it's performing incredibly well. And that's part of the problem, isn't it, Brian? Meta is about the future and the Facebook papers, quite frankly, are about the present. And that needs tackling today. Right. Brian Stelter, right. thank you for that. Thanks. OK, Stelter here on First Move, mixing the planet and profits. The former CEO of Unilever says doing good for the climate is good for business. And the Carbon Calculator, the climate tech startup helping companies measure their emissions footprint. That's all coming up. Stay with us. It may be Friday, but we're already gearing up for a busy weekend ahead on the world stage as we speak world leaders gathering in Rome ahead of the weekend's G20 summit. From Italy, many will be travelling on directly to Scotland for the COP26 climate talks. Speaking of which, the COP26 climate talks are a turning point for humanity, so says the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but with China and Russia not attending and India rejecting calls for a net zero carbon target, many are already voicing fears that the talks will fail. My next guest says that's a mistake. In a Time magazine op-ed, he argues against writing off the talks before they've even started. We cannot afford to throw in the towel, he warns. And joining us now is Paul Polman. He's co-founder and chair of the consultancy Imagine, which helps businesses become a force for social good. He is also the former CEO of Unilever and author of Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. Paul, fantastic to have you with us on the show. You do argue, let's not be defeatist as we head into these talks before they've even begun. And you give reasons, statistics for why the interest and the money that's being targeted towards climate change and mitigating the effects is growing and it's growing fast. Yes, Julianne, thanks for the opportunity. In fact, a year and a half ago when we were facing the dreadful COVID attack, if I may call it the pandemic, uh, lots of people, uh, often the same people that are now talking that Glasgow is failing, were saying that businesses would shrink back to um, cost cutting and that ESG was dead and that we would see uh, the same behavior as we saw in the financial crisis about 10 years before. Uh, the opposite is true. 
We have seen countries now in the one and a half years time, 30% of global emissions making net zero commitments by 2050. Currently, we're at 80% of the countries having made those commitments. We see the same with companies where we have 20% uh, of the biggest companies making these commitments. And in the financial market, we have over 100 trillion, I would argue about half of the world's money making commitments to be net zero. We've never seen that shift. Collectively, we've probably moved farther ahead than we could have thought at any time uh, in history. Now, the problem is that collectively, the commitments that we're making are too far out, 2050, and they're not enough versus what the world actually needs. Collectively, they're projecting in the next 10 years a 9% decline in emissions. For the first time, by the way, that we're showing a decline with concrete plans, but we need a 45% decline. That's why the G20 now in Rome is so important, because they need to make a commitment to keep the one and a half degrees alive. They need to come with some concrete things, like, for example, not financing coal plants abroad anymore or reducing drastically the methane emissions. And then Glasgow itself will be key, because there we will ask concrete commitments from the countries between now and 2030. We will form uh, broader partnerships that uh, are emerging to tackle these issues. And last but not least, put nature-based solutions on the agenda, which are proving to be the most effective, lowest cost and highest job creation. So this is all about opportunity and we're well out of the starting blocks. Yeah, and concrete commitment, I think, was the key phrase in that as well. I mean, you say in your op-ed, um, if we could take our recent rate of progress and double it again over the next 18 months, then we could finally be on track. So for everything that we've seen, we still need to see um, double again what we've, what we've already achieved. Um, let's talk about the business community in particular, because we have seen a huge shift, I think, in the last 18 months from them in particular. And the big message that, that I took away from your book was that um, Profits and the planet, they can go together and actually they can be mutually reinforcing. And you did everything that you did just based on conviction at Unilever. Now we've got far more proof that actually there are benefits that can be had and they can help businesses too. Do you think businesses really believe that today or are they just being sort of shoved and they still see it as a cost centre for the most part, even if they're being shoved by their, by their shareholders? And their consumers. Well, I think some things have changed. There are some businesses that embrace it more seriously than others, but increasingly so. We've seen that uh, being driven by probably three factors. One is the the uh, direct effects of climate changes are coming in every PNL. About 85% of the key business leaders are saying climate change is affecting me now, and it costs money. I certainly saw that when I was running Unilever, where probably every week or every other week we had a supply chain. Uh, disruption. The second factor is the financial market has moved. If you look at the pressure that is now coming in uh, from the financial market on these companies, they have seen not only the risk mitigation uh, that needed to happen, but they increasingly see opportunities for companies that actually position themselves well in the future. Uh, and, and value is created there. And the third reason is actually the employees themselves. I have, I cannot talk to any CEO anymore, nearly on a daily basis who doesn't tell me that he or she gets the pressure from their employees that just expect these companies to be moving forward. So you see the commitments, but relatively few have made commitments shorter term and put concrete action plans behind it. And this is obviously what we now need to drive. But major 
uh, CEOs are discovering that many of these things they can't do alone, and increasingly they're joining these broader alliances like Race to Zero or Race to Zero Breakthrough or the Methane Alliance and many other things. You know, one of the things that I liked about the book was that um, it just assumed the why. We know why we have to tackle this. We have to get to the how. Um, and you've made really bold calls with Unilever. You said, look, we're going to cut our environmental footprint by half, help a billion people improve their health. You also said we're going to pay all direct employees a living wage by 2020. And you did it. And you also said we also want to get our suppliers providing a living wage by 2030 as well. I mean, these were incredibly bold calls, uncomfortable I think, announcements perhaps at the time. And I think the message from the book is too that it, it's okay to be uncomfortable with what you're announcing. You just have to go all out to, to meet those targets. Yeah, that is why we say in the book, uh, Net Positive, how courageous companies thrive by giving more than they take. You know, it takes courage to set targets that you know are needed versus targets you can just achieve, um, the minimal targets you can get away with. It takes courage to take responsibility of your total handprint in society, all consequences, intended or not. I just heard your discussions on Facebook. It actually takes courage to work together with others in partnership to tackle these broader issues when you're not totally in charge or might deal with some inconvenience truths. So this book talks about as much a personal transformation of the CEOs as a company and ultimately a systems transformation. And then it doesn't shy away from what we call the elephants in the room, which is making the tougher calls to be consistent. You cannot on the one hand say, I'll do very aggressively climate change activity to mitigate it. And on the other hand, financial trade association, that's the, the opposite. Or money in politics or avoiding taxes or corruption or uh, human rights in the value chain. And what we found in Unilever, which, by the way, had a 300% shareholder return over those 10 years, and the, the shareholders were pretty happy in general. What we found was that when we attack these issues and work for uh, optimizing the return for all of our stakeholders, that we actually also were running our company better, more motivated employees, better talent attraction, more resilience in the value chain, more innovative in dealing with these problems. And that ultimately comes back to better business results. And what we now see overwhelmingly, not black and white, but overwhelmingly, is that companies that tackle these negative externalities proactively have actually within their own sectors a higher valuation than companies that don't, which also means that the financial sector has woken up. I don't think they're driven by the morality of the story. That will take a while still, in my opinion. But they're seeing the enormous opportunity now because the cost of not acting has simply become significantly higher than the cost of acting. And smart companies see that. Yeah, I mean, you said it put you in a position at Unilever in order to be able to fend off um, being targeted by Kraft Heinz in the end back in, in 2017. But sure. you mentioned Facebook. So I, I feel given your experience and your wisdom, I have to ask you, because I look at the share price action of, of Facebook in light of everything that's been revealed over the past few months. And, and I question investor commitment to externalities and, and harm that, that companies can do. Do you see that as an anomaly, what we're seeing with Facebook? Yeah, unfortunately, I see that as an anomaly and perhaps be also the lack of transparency. It's very complex out there, very complicated and not fully transparent. One of the reasons why we need to get uh, common standards, a sustainable standard board or the SEC, the European taxonomy, so that we can get to a type of 
transparency and behavior that is consistent with what we say. Uh, here uh, in the financial market, I'm sure that there, which uh, we also see in the fossil fuel industry, there are some who want to optimize their shorter term returns and go for these opportunities. But broadly, we see more of them moving to the longer term and doing the right thing. If you now see that in the last uh, proxy season in the US, uh, the, the, the questions that were being posed at these annual meetings were mainly around ESG uh, questions that we've never seen before. It is now the shareholder broadly that is demanding more rapid uh, changes at a company level. So I think we're going in the right direction, but we still see these inconsistencies that we need to deal with. And frankly, we need to call them out. You cannot on the one hand say we're doing so many good things and connecting people on right. platforms, but then on the other hand, having a child addiction or undermining democracy or hate speech, uh, you know, you, you ought to know better by now. And I think increasingly we see that these companies are not only being called out, but employees are calling them off. And that ultimately will be reflected in a share price. Yeah, that's our duty, I think, as consumers and as, as workers to spot the inconsistencies and where people aren't being true to their words and, um, and act on it. The, um, the front page of The Economist uh, this week says cop out. You are the counter to that, Paul. We have to have belief. Healthy scepticism is allowed. Nothing more. Paul Polman, co-founder and chair of Imagine. Thank you. And um, the book's worth reading. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Thank sir. You. Great. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. investors are beginning to close the books on a profitable October, but a weaker start for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq today, with the bulk of the losses coming in tech. Amazon and Apple sending the strongest signals yet. The supply chain issues hitting global businesses have extended into this current quarter. Shares of both firms sharply lower in early trade with the Amazon share price now flat on the year. But hey, let's be clear, it is at $3,278. Tech investors watching the action in the bond market too closely. U.S. benchmark 10-year yields back near 6% ahead of next week's important Fed meeting. 1.6%, uh, my apologies. Policymakers widely expected to announce that they will begin cutting back on bond buying. Investors will also be looking for signs that central bankers are closer to raising interest rates next year. Now, as you've heard a little earlier, President Biden met with Pope Francis at the Vatican. Among other things, they discussed climate change, which is at the heart of the Biden economic agenda. Meanwhile, in Washington, the president's infrastructure deal still hanging in the balance. CNN's Caitlin Collins is in Rome and joins us now. Caitlin, great to have you with us on the show. Climate, actually, the biggest chunk of the framework that they've agreed, but a framework isn't a deal. He's had challenges with his own party. He's also had challenges the French president comes instantly to mind on the international stage too. How does President Biden enter these talks this weekend in your mind? Well, there's a lot that he is juggling and he is coming mm. with a far different message than the one that he brought to the G7, of course, which we covered, you know, just about four to five months ago. And a lot of that has to do with not just what's happening at home, but as you noted, what is happening abroad. So that is why this meeting that he has with the French president in a few hours is going to be so closely watched because it is the first time that the two of them have met ever since that deal, of course, by France, where they had with Australia to sell them uh, those nuclear or those diesel powered submarines was essentially um, completely demolished by this new proposal where the U.S. is going to sell them nuclear-powered submarines and effectively cutting France out of that multi-billion dollar deal. And so we'll see how they try to patch things up 
today because, of course, the French have said they do still feel the sense of betrayal and the question of whether or not they can trust the United States to keep them updated on matters like that. And so it's not just that, though, of course. That's just one moment that the president is having in this marathon of diplomatic meetings that he's got going on over the next several days. And all of this is coming in the context of what happened as he was leaving Washington when it comes to his domestic agenda, because he did make this last minute appeal to Democrats to try to get that passed and have something more solid on his hands as he came here to Rome and then, of course, onto that international climate conference in Scotland. And that is something that Democrats said they were not ready to do because progressives said they were not going to vote on one bill unless they had the assurances of those moderate Democratic senators for another. And so the president has a proposal for a climate framework here, about $550 billion, a lot of money that the president and his administration is putting toward curbing climate change. But whether or not that's enough for world leaders, since it is not something that has passed Congress yet, and you've seen how much uh, these things have changed, you know, on an hour to hour basis almost back in Washington. Whether or not that's enough for world leaders really remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, they'll live in hope. I think that something on this can be can be agreed, certainly. Caitlin, from your talks to those close to the White House, what would success look like, whether it's on the G20 stage or, of course, when we're talking about climate as we head into uh, COP26, particularly when we know such crucial members of the G20, like President Xi Jinping, are only going to be participating virtually? The White House is certainly hoping to take advantage of the absence of Putin and Xi Jinping Mm. while they are here. They're saying that the president is going to use that time to kind of work the room, to talk to these other world leaders, to try to use those moments that often can be critical in relationships between world leaders. It's those in-person moments when they can often make the best case for their policies and their agenda with other world leaders. And so, of course, part of President Biden's has been getting Europe altogether to take a stronger tone when it comes to China. That has been something that they've not always been on the same page about exactly. And so that could be something that the president tries to use. There could be some some takeaways from this G20 that aren't tangible. If it is something like that, where the White House does feel like they're more effective in pushing that message because those two leaders are absent from this. And so one other, of course, that is more concrete is the corporate minimum tax, the global minimum tax. That is something uh, that the president has wanted other countries to sign on to. They want to have that established. So countries or companies aren't going to other nations, setting up their businesses there. And so that is really, uh, really probably the only concrete one that the White House says is the most important, but also building these relationships, trying to restore some trust that was lost in the withdrawal from Afghanistan with the French dust up, of course, as well. Uh, those are the, really the matters that he's going to be pushing here. Yeah, it's such a great point. When we come out of these G20 meetings, we're always looking for the concrete action that results Uh, as part of these talks. But to your point, sometimes the intangibles matter more. Caitlin Collins, thank you so much for that. And stay with CNN for more coverage throughout the day of President Biden in Rome. Now, coming up after the break, calculating an invisible cost of doing business, how technology is catching up with good intentions when it comes to measuring carbon footprints. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. This video was posted on Twitter today by the climate action group Insulate Britain. Two protesters are walking along a motorway south of London to demand meaningful government action. 
And now a UK minister says Britain wants to be among the first countries to adopt global standards for disclosing corporate sustainability. The idea is to help investors compare the climate impact of companies in different parts of the world. The question is, how do you measure it? Well, my next guest is using dynamic modelling to audit business sustainability. He says that helps companies meet their climate targets. Kintaro Karamori is the CEO of Persephone and he joins us now. Kintaro, great to have you with us. Um, That didn't explain the science of what you're doing. So just explain what Persephone allows companies to do and how. Great to be here, Julia. And yeah, it's a complicated topic. Uh, If you're a an operating company, let's say you're an energy firm, or even if you're a CPG firm and you sell mac and cheese in stores, you you are creating an enormous amount of footprint. So what our platform does is take in all of the activity data that those businesses are undergoing, whether that's shipping products, manufacturing product, using energy, and we turn that into verifiable and auditable carbon footprint numbers that are then used in disclosures for financial regulators or for investors. And on the flip side, as you just pointed out, Investors are looking to figure out, how do I compare different companies' climate footprints and their, really their overall ESG frameworks and their footprints? And we are one of the first companies to really pioneer in, in a field called financed emissions calculations. So we can actually take lending data, we can take investment data from some of the world's largest investors and banks and turn that into verifiable carbon footprint numbers that are then used in those disclosures as well. And how comprehensive is this? Are we talking uh, fleet, logistics, uh, operations, travel, production, maybe even suppliers? You pull data points from all of those. And and is it dynamic? Across the board, it's very dynamic. Uh, It's Mm. constantly evolving. You know, the field of software and data as it pertains to climate change and solutions that are helping solve and address the problem for businesses and governments is in its early stages. Uh, we, We often say we're not even in ESG 1.0 right now, and we're certainly not even in climate 1.0. So there's lots of work to do, lots more data to collect, and lots more solutions like ours that have to be created and, of course, then spread into the market. I mean, I I read an article that you, um, an op-ed that you'd done for Forbes, and you were saying you got sick of seeing all these announcements, but no one really following through with action. And one of the things that you got feedback from the companies was, yeah, we want to take action, but we just, we don't know how to measure, and we don't know how to, to act upon even the data that we do know that we have, you're currently uh, helping four of the world's largest banks, 10 of the world's largest PE firms. What about the energy sector or the miners, some of the dirtiest? Are you helping them too? We are, uh, you know, the progressive ones. uh, And you wouldn't believe, or maybe you would believe some of the conversations we've had with some of the biggest emitters in the world. Uh, Maybe seven months into our journey, we were engaging with one of the largest oil and gas firms and they actually tried to get us to quasi-greenwash uh, their outputs and asked us to essentially use older data sets that were going to make their emissions numbers look better than they actually were. Wow. So today, unbelievable and on the one hand, but also very much characteristic of their behavior in the past. But yeah, we're certainly you know very much working together with some of the largest that are committed to transitioning to renewable energies, like EDF out of Paris, of course, one of the largest providers of renewable energy in the world. I bet you won't name them. You probably shouldn't name them. I mean, uh, the I bad guys. Name them in most cases. Never mind the but, good guys. <laughs> uh, you, can, you can probably guess who they are, and it's no secret. So, you know, companies like Exxon have just faced enormous pressure, and of course, have, have seen board directors turned over as a result of some of that past behavior and failing to act on this topic. So, when you see 
the big oil, you mentioned it, so I'll follow your, um, follow your lead, up in front of Congress being asked questions about things like misinformation. Do you think that's a good idea? Because even from the experience you're getting, there are still companies out there clearly that are going, hey, how do you help us greenwash, not actually for the purpose that you're saying that your company was started for, which is, hey, let's help you clean up and suggest ways that you can improve your carbon emission footprint? Yeah, you know, I think uh, when it comes to big oil and when it comes to net zero commitments in general, it's sort of a wide spectrum of good intentions, bad data, and and sometimes just farcical behavior, to be frank. Uh, you have CEOs, especially in the energy sector, that don't really believe in net zero. They don't believe the energy industry can be decarbonized. And I've had that conversation many times. I continue to have that conversation with them and, and try to educate them on the realities of it. But you know, there's there's a wide degree of spectrum sort of in the maturity curve there. Some of them, as they're committing, are very intentful, uh, you know, and some of them aren't. But the other interesting thing is these companies are so large, even if the CEO is setting the agenda and saying these companies need to decarbonize, oftentimes companies underneath that parent company or executives in the subsidiaries don't feel the same and their actions aren't meeting the, the commitments from their leader. Yeah. Do you think there's a way for you to be talking to governments to say, hey, this is a way that we can standardise this? Obviously, the UK government's talking about sort of climate reporting in the same way that they do financial reporting, because I know you're raising money like crazy from investors. You're signing up big companies, too. I just somehow think that if we could square the circle on this and have governments talking to companies and standardising the reporting around your kind of information and data collection, um, then we'd really see some change. You're exactly right. You know, a wholesale approach is needed here. And, you know, you're seeing consumer trends demanding companies to produce cleaner products and greener products, which is creating pressures on them. But we can't do this at scale and, and achieve, you know, the goals set out by the Paris Agreement in 2016 without governments. I mean, that's really critical. And that's, of course, what COP26 is very focused on. For us, our chief sustainability officer uh, is engaging actively with the EU Commission, helping them build their new frameworks that will roll out over the coming uh, year or two around corporate uh, climate disclosures. Personally, uh, myself, I'm involved with some of the U.S. agencies. We're on record supporting uh, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler's comments for carbon and climate disclosures here. But we're also working with global regulators in Japan and the state of California. So it's, a, it's happening all over the place. Oh. We're going to continue this discussion, my friend. Thank you for joining us today. And I know it was an early wake up as well. So I appreciate you for that too. Kentaro Karamori there, the CEO of Persephone. Great to chat to you and we'll speak again soon. We're back after this. Stay with us. Sustainable transportation, advanced exoskeletons and smart robots. This is what's on display at Dubai's Jitex Technology Conference. The pandemic changed our lives and it amplified the use of technology. And leaders are here to discuss the new trends that will transform our future. One topic getting a lot of attention is the future of work, whether at home, in the office or possibly in virtual reality. 
video conferencing platform Zoom helped lead the way in providing work from home solutions. I asked Abe Smith, the head of International, about the next big idea and where the company is headed. So the big idea is actually to become your communication system, your video and your communication operating system for life. So what we mean by that is everything that you do requires communication, whether that's a simple birthday party to the largest, most important presentation you make at the boardroom. That, that platform, that layer should be powered by Zoom. Let's talk about the competitive environment because you know, you've got other players that are also thinking the way you are and you know, Zoom had an issue where you saw you know, um, the firewalls weren't strong enough and then you obviously rectified that. Tell me about your competitive space and, and you know, how you're thinking you're going to stay ahead of the curve. The way we improve is real simple. You know, we continue to be agile, we continue to be creative in how we develop products like our Zoom phone product or our events products, how we create new features that delight and create an amazing experience. We want the video experience to feel as if you're sitting face to face, side by side, as close to that experience as possible. And we think as, as long as we continue to advance that kind of discipline in our approach to developing product, we'll do great. Okay, so let's talk about that when you say you want me to feel like I'm with that person. So are you talking about virtual reality experiences? I mean, right now you just video. How are you going to take that forward? That well, it's a, great, it's a great question. You know, we want to be as cutting edge as technology allows for today. You know, we recently announced a partnership with Oculus and how we look at things like AR or VR. But at the same time, what that means is delighting the experience so that every meeting is perfect high quality, HD quality, it's secure, it's safe, it's easy to use. And then as we continue to advance, maybe one day it's shaking a hand through the video, maybe it's one day it's smelling the coffee. You know, that's to come. When, when technology's there, we'll be there with it. And finally, on first move, when Facebook announced its corporate name would become Meta, it led to some instant, unexpected winners and losers. On the winning side, the Canadian company Meta Materials, whose stock surged as much as 25% late on Thursday, I'm presuming because traders mistook the name, but also spare a thought for anyone with an infinity tattoo. Twitter helpfully pointed out that they now own something that resembles the Meta logo on their bodies. Yes, you've been branded. And plenty of critics saying that the name change is merely a diversion, as one person clearly illustrated here. Hmm... I shall let you decide. Timing, as they say, is everything. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. Have a great weekend and we'll see you on Monday. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.